Hello, rhetorical listeners, and welcome into another episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods, and guess what? You're in store for a special episode this week, Sounds from 3M Symposium. Let me give you a little bit more information on what that means. The 3M Symposium, Symposium on Mindfulness, Media, and Misinformation in the Digital Age, was held September 13th in Kokomo, Indiana, and I packed the car up, well, it was really just one bag, and headed over for the day. Luckily, I'm only about two and a half to three hours away from Kokomo. I had never been before. It sounds exotic. It's not so exotic, but it is a great place to visit. And I had fun. There were so many cornfields between here in Bloomington, Illinois, and Kokomo, Indiana. Because of my travel schedule, I went around Indianapolis. Well, I didn't actually go to Indianapolis because I wanted to beat the, or I thought beat, what, that's not the right word really. What's the right word? I wanted to avoid rush hour traffic in the morning in Indianapolis. So I drove through the cornfields. I got there at 11. Just in time for the second session, checked out the facilities, enjoyed the sessions, but the real highlight, really the highlight of the event was the workshop. In the afternoon, participants of the 3M Symposium were treated to an interactive workshop led by Michael Caulfield of Washington State University, Vancouver, and of the American Democracy Project. And that interactive workshop was fascinating. I could sit here on this microphone and talk at length about the exercises, the digital um, archive of activities that Michael and his team have curated. But I think what would be better is if you hear from Paul and if you hear from Polly and if you hear from Michael about the events of the symposium. Sound should be pretty good on this recording. The last time I did a live recording at a conference was at Computers and Writing in East Lansing. This summer, we were in a bowling alley. Things worked out beautifully. But for this recording, we were in a brewery. And it was absolutely amazing. It was Tidman's Brewery in Kokomo, Indiana. And it's in an old train station. Now, I have not spent a lot of time traveling around cities in the Midwest, but I have been to Champaign, Illinois, and I have been to Kokomo, Indiana, and they both have breweries in old train stations, and I think that's super cool, super cool. So we popped on the mic, and this is the sounds from 3M Symposium in Kokomo. Where are we at? This is the Tin Man Brewing Company in Kokomo, Indiana. And it is a converted train terminal, train station? That's right. This is the old uh, Kokomo train depot. Half of the building has been converted into the brewery. The other half is a steakhouse. Oh, a steakhouse. Oh, that's pretty good. I bet Indiana has pretty good steak. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Here in Kokomo. I've I've heard. I've not eaten there yet, but I've heard um, more than one person say that it was, was, yeah, that it's very good. Very good steak. It's good to sit down with you. Uh, in 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 the in the crowd today, I have seen you moving at ninety miles an hour the whole day, getting things done. Um, but I think that 
that hard work led to a really great and successful symposium. Uh, I would love to hear your comments about uh, how things went today so far. Oh, I think it was fantastic. Um, we have been talking, and by we, uh, I'm referring to myself and Polly Burrup Jones, uh, who is the dean of the library here at IU Kokomo. We've been planning to get Mike Caulfield from Washington State University and from the American Democracy Project here for a long time. And we finally uh, succeeded in, in getting him to campus today to do a keynote and a workshop. Um, both were fantastic. Um, and we also had a, a full day of panel discussions and presentations. Um, I've heard from uh, more than a few people that the event was a success and that everyone uh, learned a lot and had a great time. So I am just absolutely thrilled that we were able to pull this off. It was it was a success. It really was. It was. I think that one of the things that I really appreciated about Mike's workshop is that he gave the audience tangible things yes. to leave with, yes. to work yes. with, and implement in their classrooms. That's right, and and I think uh, you saw that in the in 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 both the keynote and the workshop. But I think particularly in the workshop because Mike really, as you well, you were there. He treated it as though it was a classroom setting. Um, to the to the extent of you know um, encouraging participation with the with the attendees, handing out the post-it notes. I mean that was a minor thing, but I thought that was fairly brilliant. He gave out each person two post-it notes, and they wrote their name on it. And um, you basically uh, those post-it notes represented your two opportunities to chime in and participate. And so in doing that, he was able to encourage more participation. I thought it was a brilliant method yeah. for a, a big room with a lot of people in it, and it's it's might be maybe something to consider for any classroom as well, for sure. Well, I know, and it's kind of funny that I had, I mean I've been teaching composition for years and years, and I think folks in rhetoric and composition are often kind of think of ourselves as being the real pedagogical experts, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, I I haven't I've never I mean this never even occurred to me to do this right, and so I yeah. But I, I, it is a good idea. Yeah, I have a talker this semester, so I may have to, I may have to implement. Well, that's right. And so the flip side of the post-it note method is that you can limit the amount of talking that that uh, a single person can do, right, in, in the course of a of a discussion, which can be incredibly useful. One of the things that Michael noted during his uh, keynote discussion, what was so great about this symposium what is, was that we had Michael for the keynote and then later in the afternoon for the workshop as well. But for the keynote, what was so great was he brought up the fact that this is a project that was uh, funded by a grant that you all won. That's and, right. and when we talked earlier, I know that you mentioned it, but it wasn't something that we necessarily talked a bit about. So I wondered if you would kind of talk to us a little bit about the grant, winning the grant, and then how it led to this project specifically. Absolutely. In early 2018, uh, RTI and the Rita Allen Foundation put out a, a call for a nationwide competition known as the Misinformation Solutions Forum. Um, they, uh, they were looking for essentially, uh, curricular interventions in the realm of misinformation. And, um, we ended up being one of the finalists last October. We got invited to Washington DC, uh, to the Aspen Institute to, uh, compete in kind of a showcase showdown, if you will, with five other teams. Um, for the grand prize of $50,000. And I'm happy to say that IU Kokomo uh, walked away that day with the 
$50,000 grand prize. Um, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention my colleagues, um, Polly Borup Jones, uh, our BCAA Mark Canada uh, Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs, and also our um, Associate Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs and Student Success, Christina Downey. So the four of us uh, made up that 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 team, um, and our project that that uh, that we uh, that we received the uh, the grand prize for is called Mind Over Chatter. Um, and Michael Caulfield was uh, also there, and Michael and his team from Washington State University uh, walked away with the second prize. So they gave away three top prizes: um, one for 50k, the other two for 25k. Okay. So is that where you met Michael? Because I know that you you got, you and him have a relationship beyond this conference. You know, I I, I met Michael actually uh, earlier than that. We met in uh, early 2017. This was um, at the Civic Learning and Democratic Engagement Conference, and um, I mentioned this this morning in my introduction to Michael's keynote address. Uh, we um, we we met at the uh, at the CLDE, and from the very beginning. Uh, of, of, of the workshop that he led that afternoon, uh, I saw something, personally, I saw something in his approach that I thought was absolutely marvelous and really just uh, um, excellent and, and so practical and so useful and so immediately relevant to what's going on right now in terms of misinformation, in terms of uh, you know artificial intelligence, machine learning, bots, all of this stuff on the web. And, and, and in general, just the, the, the difficulties that students have navigating the information space that exists on the web and social media. And um, uh, from almost the very beginning, Polly and I uh, got together and said, we've got to find a way to bring this guy to campus. Well, that was about two and a half years ago. And um, we, we made that a reality today. So it's been a process. Uh, it's, it's well, it's been a process, and I I, I don't need to imply that, it, that that you know it, it just it's a it you know that it was a difficulty necessarily, but it's one of those things where it takes a while to right. sort of work out all the all the scheduling. Um, Mike, of course, is you know works at Washington State and lives on the other side of the country uh, from us, and so um, you know so we had to work out those logistics, and we also knew that we wanted to do something that would engage the Indiana University system. And it would in, in, uh, bring in faculty and students from around the system. Uh, and so we actually timed our, our symposium to coincide with the Indiana University Bicentennial. So we are celebrating our, our 200-year, um, the 200-year anniversary of our founding um, in 1820. We're, we're in the process of celebrating that now. It's a year-long celebration that actually begins this month. And we'll go all the way through the rest of the academic year uh, through May of uh, 2020. That's fantastic. That's cool. So the things that you and your team have given us and the things that uh, Mike has Mike. given us, what's the next step for, for, for Mind Over Chatter and for uh, this symposium? That's a great question. I'll take it sort of one at a time. Mind Over Chatter, um, we're actually piloting um, some curriculum right now in our first year writing courses here at IU Kokomo. We recently hired three brilliant uh, peer mentors who are undergraduate students who are going to work with the W131 instructors to deliver and support this content with the students. Um, you know, and I think there's a, there are a number of, of uh, practical advantages to this. One of them is that the students will be able to, in some ways, um, present a different perspective on misinformation uh, to the students and on 
on, on you know, a lot of the hijinks that, that, that uh, happen online. Um, and so we're starting that, that pilot project. We've already started that pilot project. We've got the modules that have been created, and we're implementing those as we speak into these three sections of English W131. We hope to expand this out um, uh, to all of the sections of the English W131 uh, in the fall of, uh, of 2020. Um, and in my conversations with Brian Southwell of Duke University and of the Rita Allen Foundation, um, we would also like to pilot this in the community college system in North Carolina. Uh, so we have some contacts there. Um, as far as the symposium goes, I don't know. Uh, we, uh, I haven't had a chance to talk to Polly yet, but given the success that we had today, I would say there's a very good chance that we're going to do this again next year. And uh, I think we're probably going to stick with a similar theme, you know, uh, thinking about the ways that mindful reflection and mindfulness in general can, can help us to deal with uh, not only misinformation, but also the, the information superabundance that we're now dealing with in the, in the larger information architecture and ecology of the web. And so, uh, so I, I, I don't want to speak for anyone else, but as far as I'm concerned, I, I think we're going to do this again next year. That is so good to hear. That was awesome, Paul. Thanks so much. Oh, you bet. Hey, thank you. And thank you for coming all the way from Illinois for this symposium. Oh, it was excellent. Totally worth it. How long have you... I'm going to go ahead and record. How long have you been a librarian? Um, I've been a librarian since I'm 1996. So what's that? 23 years? 23 years, 1996. I think so. Yeah. Have you been at IU Kokomo since 96? No, I've been here since 2013. 2013. And where where did you come from? I was at Drury University for three years before that. Before and then I uh, before that rather I was at IUPUI in Indianapolis for 11 years, and I started my career at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. Very cool. I, Drury University sounds familiar. Where is that located? Springfield, Missouri. Springfield, Missouri. So, okay, you've kind of lived all, all over the Midwest. I have. I haven't gotten west of Missouri, but, but yeah, the Midwest and Virginia, yeah. Very cool. Um, so, I was in your presentation today, and it was a pr presentation about... Uh, the grant that you all won and about what came out of that grant, which was uh, Mind Over Chatter and the symposium. Could you perhaps give us um, a breakdown, outline, whatever, of your presentation? Um, for the Mind Over Chatter, um, it's a, a grant-funded project in which we're trying to take this, this concept of teaching students to um, recognize and deal with misinformation just kind of a step farther. Not only um, do we want them to be able to evaluate, um, recognize and evaluate information that they find online, um, but they need to understand that um, a much, much of the way that they react and interpret the information they find online has, uh, has to do with their biases and the emotions that, that that information elicits. Because often uh, the digital information that we encounter um, may be controversial, it may be intentionally created to um, sort of rile people up or you know get a reaction from people. Um, and a lot of that reaction is really based in the biases that we hold. So that's really what that's about. It's about mitigating um, biases in college students specifically. 
So I know that you're a part of Paul's team, and he's a member of the English department, and you're the dean of the library. So could you talk a little bit about that relationship, and then also what are the hurdles that you have to overcome as a librarian that instructors may not have to overcome, and vice versa? I've been very fortunate at Indiana University Kokomo because I have uh, an ally and a colleague in, in, in Paul Cook for... Um, uh, for one, um, with my boss, who is the, the executive vice chancellor for academic affairs, he is a big supporter of information literacy. And so that is, that's huge uh, for a librarian. Because one thing that we need, have to overcome as academic librarians is, is just perhaps the notion or the perception that um, librarians don't quite have the same... Um, understanding of classroom pedagogy, um, uh, don't per, uh, maybe don't have the, the same understanding of, of pertinent uh, uh, content, curriculum. Content. But we know that's a myth. We know that's a myth. And so, um, and so but, but because we know it's a myth, we are often trying to overcome that, you know, and that's not always the case. Um, but usually in order to, um, to be able to do that, one needs an ally. And so I have that in Dr. Cook. Um, he and I and, and the information literacy librarian at IU Kokomo have worked for years now, um, probably three years at least, on embedding information literacy into the writing curriculum. And so he and I had that history already. And, and when this opportunity arose for the Mind Over Chatter um, or for the, for the grant proposal that, that resulted in Mind Over Chatter, um, my boss, who again is um, a strong supporter of information literacy, um, contacted me, contacted Paul, knowing that, um, knowing Paul's interest in that, um, and then the then brought in the fourth member of the team, um, who's a psychologist, and that's kind of that's how we put the team together. And so that's kind of my history with Paul. We you know we started really just in in his writing uh, course classroom working to teach students um, about information literacy, how to do college research, how to find information, how to evaluate information. In your presentation, you talked about the trajectory of Mind Over Chatter. And I wonder, is this a project that you see going into the IU system or beyond? What's your overall vision for the trajectory of this? We see it going beyond uh, the IU system, certainly. Um, our, one of our, our goals is, or our, I guess our primary outcome, is to create uh, classroom modules that can be freely used um, by anybody who's interested in using it. So, um, you know, using an open educational resource model, essentially. Uh, our, our university uses Canvas, so I would anticipate that initially we might put those modules into in the, to the Canvas um, Commons for people to, to take, but we definitely want to make it available more broadly, more widely than that. Uh, we don't want to limit it to, to the Canvas environment. Uh, and so starting um, by sort of um, sharing this with IU other IU campuses, that's kind of a natural starting point. But, but the ultimate goal is to make this available, these modules available for anybody who wants to use them, along with sort of a curriculum plan, 
Um, we're using peer student peer instructors in in this um, in this curriculum, and so um, part of what we are creating is tr our, our training materials for those peer instructors, and so that would be part of that package that we would make available for anybody to use. I'm so excited to see how this works and where it goes. Um, so. I think that's all I've got for you. I really appreciate you stopping by and chatting for a minute, Polly. Is there anything else you want to add? I, I can't think of anything. I'm so thrilled about today. I'm so glad you came. Thank you so much. It's great to talk with you. Well, I was thrilled about today, too. It was some super cutting-edge stuff. I think you are in a great place. Your program is doing some really cool stuff. So. Thank you so much. Thanks, Polly. Applause well, for your keynote. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Hopefully, we won't have any here. But... Um, and, Call Field yeah. at Holden on Twitter. Yeah, I. Um, it's nice to meet you and chat with you. Um, you're here from Washington State University in Vancouver. Yep. Yes. And you are. What's your What is your position there? What's your role there? I'm the director of Blended Network Learning. Okay, and blended and networked learning. So I think I know what that means. But what exactly does that mean for someone yeah. who may not know? Well, I mean, historically, what it's meant in the job is I help faculty figure out how to teach best with technology. Uh, but also integrate uh, digital literacies and so stuff uh, along those lines into their curriculum. Very cool. And so I know that you met Paul sometime in 2017, Paul Cook, who helped part of the team putting this together. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about your relationship and what ultimately led you to be the keynote here in Kokomo today? Yeah, so I met Paul at uh, um, CDLE, uh, which is the Civic Democrat. Jeez, acronyms, am I right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's part of the American Democracy Project, right? It's the big, it's the big uh, conference around these issues of uh, student civic engagement, and uh, a piece of what we were doing uh, starting that year in 2017 is talk about some of these digital literacies and the way that those intersect with civic engagement, and you know the idea that much of our life now in this democratic society uh, is mediated by the web and learning to navigate information on the web is part of civic engagement. So I teach writing, um, I teach freshman comp, FYC, I teach technical communication courses, business writing courses and so this is a subject that sometimes I broach with my students and at different magnitudes, right, in an yeah. FYC course versus an upper-level course. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience introducing these topics to students, student response, things yeah. like that. Yeah, so um, students, I find, are actually very worried about this. Uh, right. They have a lot of stress about whether what they're seeing is true or false. Uh, their reaction in many cases is just to withdraw entirely from sort of the information public sphere, right? Uh, to, to sort of say, uh, again, again, a pox on both their houses. Um, we don't know what is true. Who can really know? And, and, and at the same time, they don't feel that that's really an adequate response. They're, they're just throwing their hands up. They're throwing their hands up. And, and, the, and I don't think that... I don't think it's for want of engaging. I, I just think that they they find the current uh, environment unnavigable, right? And so what we've tried to do is is really think through it um, in terms of you know in terms of what you know we need socially, but also in terms of what those student desires are and what would it take for a student to productively engage 
uh, in this information environment that can be very complex and confusing and manipulated and botted, you know. Uh, um, and what we have found is that when we give students some of these skills, when, you, when we show them, not necessarily that you can know something is 100% true, but that actually getting to like a 90% confidence interval on whether something happened or not is really simple. <laughs> you know, that, that there's a sense of relief, right? And there's a sense of, and this is the most important part, there's a sense of re-engagement uh, with these issues because it's, it's not the case that a student, you know, who exists in this sort of permanent, we talk about gullible cynicism, um, it's not just the case that they're that they're uh, uh, um, they're existing in this doubt. Or, you know, it's not a virtuous state. They're disengaged. They're disengaged because they feel they can't really even rate the relative quality of of claims. Right. When you think about like an 18 year old or a 19 year old freshman going into this new atmosphere, right, yeah. at college, and they're dealing with all of those mental and physical and material hurdles, yeah. right, and then you throw something like this on them. It can be a lot to pile up, I think, on like the mental health side for students. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so, I mean, that's that's a really good good point, right? Um, because this is not the anxiety around this is real, right? There's a lot of student anxiety about a lot of things. And some of them are personal, some of them are political, and some of them are social. The anxiety around this issue is very real for our students, and so. Part of what we want to do is we want the students to retain the nuance. We want our students to maintain the questioning, right? We want them to, to not just simply take received knowledge, but we also want them to have some a few simple tools that, um, again, allow them to get to the level of confidence that they need to make very basic decisions about how they engage in the public sphere. One of the frameworks you talked about in the keynote and in your workshop, which was so great because you gave participants tangible resources to go out and implement in the classroom, was SIFT, the SIFT framework or SIFT model. Yeah. And one of the most important things about SIFT is recontextualization. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about recontextualization within the SIFT model? Yeah, so one of the sort of primary you know, problems of the digital age is the information that comes to us is often completely decontextualized or it's falsely contextualized, okay. right? So uh, in, sometimes I ask people to imagine information arriving at their door that is non-digital, right? And what do you know at the point that arrives at your door? What What is your context? So as an example, consider a local paper. Let's say it's 1985 and you subscribe to a local paper. When that paper arrives at your doorstep, you already know what that paper is. You know who writes the paper. You know the history of that paper. You know the reputation of that paper. You have some. You might even know some of the reporters that report in that paper. You know this all before you even pick up the paper and read it. If you order a book from Amazon and you decide and you choose that physical book and it arrives on your doorstep, you could probably tell me before you open a page of this nonfiction book who who the author is, what the book is about, what their expertise is, what their reputation is, how it fits into the broader discourse. You know all these things because the process in a non-digital world is that in finding the thing that you want, you're establishing the context needed to understand the thing. Digital world is not like that. Digital world, you are teleported randomly into strange contexts. 
uh, and just asked to suddenly evaluate this thing. You don't know how you got there. You don't know who produced it. You don't know why they produced it. You don't know what the agenda is. You don't know the reputation. You don't know whether it fits a larger consensus. You don't know any of these things. Uh, and yet here you are in front of this thing being asked to evaluate it. And so what has happened is people that grew up in the world, the, the more physical world, the less digital world, are kind of acting with digital objects the way they act with a paper that arrives in their doorstep. They're like, okay, let's start reading, right? Let's start reading this. And what we're saying is the digital world isn't like that. You actually don't have sufficient context to start reading this thing. You don't have sufficient context about the claim, and you don't have su sufficient context about the, the authorship, the producer of it. And so our model is about doing the basic due diligence to recontextualize the thing that you are about to engage with, decide whether it's worth engaging with, and if you engage with it, engage with it more productively because you have that context. I could talk to you for hours. Uh, I'm making so many connections to this like sociocultural pedagogy and things like that, but I know you've been on all day, so I'll let you go. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. Again, I really cannot stress to you how good Tin Man Brewing is. So if you're over there in Kokomo, Indiana, for any reason, make sure you check out that brewery. Okay, so thanks for checking in and listening to this special episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. We'll be out and about later this year. We should be down at Birmingham, Alabama for SWCA. And then, of course, we're going to be in Milwaukee for Four C's next spring. And while we're there, we want to hear from you. Help us create content for our episodes and in Milwaukee by reaching out to us. Perhaps you want to be featured. Perhaps you want to stop by whatever table I can set my microphone and sound recording equipment up on while we're there in Milwaukee. Reach out. I want to hear from you. And hey, if you like what you're hearing, make sure you write a review wherever you get podcasts. Write a review of the Big Rhetorical Podcast and let people know that you're listening. All right. We appreciate it. We'll be back next week. Until then, be kind to one another and always be listening rhetorically.